Welcome to episode 128. Today, Dr. Cecilia Espinosa and Dr. Laura Asensi Moreno will talk about how to use translanguaging to grow readers and writers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. When Amazon recommended this book to me, I knew right away that I wanted to host the authors on the podcast. In this affirming and validating conversation, we are reminded of the principles of translanguaging and get a glimpse of how to use students' entire linguistic repertoire to grow and celebrate their reading and writing identities. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I'm so excited and honored to have the two authors of Rooted in Strength here in the podcast. Uh, would you introduce yourself? Because I want to make sure you, you can, I can, we can hear your names correctly. Sure. My Thank you, um, Tan. My name is Cecilia Spinoza, and um, I teach at Lehman College, one of the colleges in the City University of New York, and I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Tan, for inviting us. We're thrilled to be here. My name is uh, Dr. Laura Shanti Moreno, and I'm also a professor within the City University of New York, located, uh, my campus is Brooklyn College. Well, we love our teachers from SUNY because we've also had another legend in the field, Dr. Ophelia Garcia, on the podcast, and she actually wrote the foreword for your book. Let's start with talking about each of you. Can you share a story of working with students that has shaped your practice, either before you were uh, at, the, at the university level or during the university level? Sure. Um, so we wanted to start with a couple, there are many stories that have shaped our practice, but I think that there are particular stories that shaped our practice with regards to translanguaging, even though translanguaging came to our teaching lives later on. And I want to start with the idea that translanguaging is based on what people do, how they use language, and how language serves their purposes. So when we think about translanguaging and taking a translanguaging stance, we think that it begins with the learner. Therefore, really, we think about a pedagogy that needs to normalize bilingualism and that positions bilinguals as people with strengths. So 
Now I'm going to tell you a story about a classroom teach as a classroom teacher in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I used to send homework to my kindergarten, first and second grade students um, each week. And the homework consisted um, on a poem that went home each Wednesday. Uh, one poem was in English, one poem was in Spanish. At times, these were translations. At times, these poems were written in both languages. One day, one of my students' grandmother said to me, Cecilia, you might have noticed that I do not send the poems back with Jose's homework. I want you to know that I keep the poems in my night table, especially the Spanish ones. I read them to myself after Jose goes to sleep. I did not know that Spanish was so beautiful. And then she added, I grew up at a time where Spanish, speaking Spanish outside the home was almost forbidden and certainly looked down. This is the first time that they get to experience the beauty of Spanish. So as I think about how this practice, um, this experience shaped my practice, I think about how translanguaging is also about reclaiming one's home language. Um, and it's also that idea that when we take a translanguaging stance, we can impact the family, not that just the children in our homes. And in addition, from a literacy perspective, the quality of the materials we send home matters, as this homework with poetry illustrates. Laura, I'm wondering, what about you? I love hearing that story. I don't think I ever heard it, and it's so exciting to hear. Um, I believe, like um, Cecilia was saying, that it's so important to see translanguaging as an opportunity to not only engage with your students, but to engage with yourself. And I've heard so many college students say to me, once they realize that it's okay, it's almost like they were given permission to take notes in their home language if their class is in English time. I didn't realize I could do that. It opens up a whole new level of um, richness and meaning making for people to be able to uh, think using whatever language practices uh, they have. But I'm thinking about two stories. And one, um, I was a second grade teacher in East New York, Brooklyn in a dual language program for many years. And I remember uh, we, I would love to take trips with my students. And um, one of the trips I took was to the aquarium. And there was a recent, uh, a student who recently arrived from El Salvador and I remember we were very worried about him because he had um, a lot of gaps in his education. He wasn't at the second grade level in so many ways, but he was like a bright, I'm um, using Juju Morales, a bright star in my classroom because he was so enthusiastic about the world. And that would come up, become apparent when we went on trips. So we went to the aquarium and we were um, looking at a walrus and the walrus was swimming underneath the water. And he said, oh my God, look, la pancita. And that comes to me as an example to show the power of translanguaging because many times teachers who work in dual language bilingual classrooms are taught to really um, kind of emphasize language separation. And even in my own practice, when I was a younger teacher, and I was trying to do language separation, I was told to, or to say, 
I don't understand you. Can you say that in English? Or I don't understand you. Can you say that in Spanish? Saying that in Spanish. But I think in moments like that, where you capture students' excitement, it's so important to take the whole aspect of that student's excitement, their body, their words, to see what they're really expressing, rather than saying, if I said to the child, let's say his name was uh, Pedro, Pedro, can you say that? Do you know how to say pancita in English? That would just be kind of uh, washing away his excitement and really focusing on language, which is really important. But instead, to really honor that person's making and excitement of the world. The last quick thing I want to talk about is, as a teacher, I think I experienced translanguaging in many ways, um, in that there were times as a dual language teacher, I often questioned the purposes of some of the um, things we were required to do. Very often teachers are required to create charts and put Spanish in, in red and English in blue. And at a certain point I thought, why are we doing this if the children already can read? You know, if the children can read, they know which language they're reading in. Um, perhaps that might be important for kids who are pre-readers so they know kind of how to bring to that decoding experience, like which sounds. But I, there were moments when I thought the strict language separation was also uh, challenging me as a teacher and not allowing me to express my whole self with the students. So I think it's important that we look at translanguaging not only for the possibilities that it opens up for students and as Cecilia's powerful story for parents, but also for teachers. I think when teachers get in touch with the possibilities of expression, if they're not supposed to be constrained to one native language or the other, new things can happen in the classroom. Well, thank you for sharing both your really beautiful stories. I wrote down the words like reclaiming language, reclaiming identity, and reclaiming our connections to with our families. Right? Because oftentimes we see students, what in particularly in international schools, where we want kids to learn English, and at the end of twelfth grade, they learn so much English that they've lost their home language, right? and they've lost their connections to their culture. And then I also wrote down language separation. I've, I really have never heard of that concept before. Where do you think that has come from? Like this like language separation and this hierarchy? I think that um, Ophelia Garcia has challenged us to think about language in very um, new ways, radical ways. Um, this, she presents this idea that language, that if we begin with the idea that language exists with the person, within the person, so it's inside the person, that person has one linguistic repertoire, but outside the person, there are two or three or five named languages that surround that person, and that that is um, something that has been socially constructed, those named languages, and so um, that, for example, schools use those named languages to label people, to organize instruction, to all of that. But when we think about it, when we start with the learner, the learner needs their entire linguistic repertoire to fully construct meaning. So, um, so we need, as teachers, we need to start with that. What experiences allow this student 
to more fully participate. And then we also live within the constraint of the ideas that main languages um, surround us. So living in that tension, I would say. I would just like to add, I'm not sure how language separation became uh, so dominant in bilingual uh, spaces, but I do think that there is this conception that if you are pushed to only speak in one language, that that kind of struggle or um, is going to make you speak. Um, so that's why in dual language classrooms, I think so often we're like only English right now or only Spanish right now. We're thinking that that kind of imposition will force people to struggle and only speak in one language. Now, what I think is important is that um, translanguaging is not seen as in opposition to the acquisition of languages, but actually seen as a boost to help uh, people learn languages. Because if you're not engaging with materials or with your full self, you're not, um, you're not engaging in language and not all of the meaning making that happens with language. So I think it's really important to think about that um, language separation may actually hinder some people from acquiring very the deep meaningful experiences that they need to acquire language. I know Cecilia's yeah. thinking about something. <laughs> and I'm thinking Laura that um, an example that illustrates this idea that you're presenting is when I share with you about this kindergarten class, they were doing a study of butterflies and the class was an ENL class, English as a new language class mm -hmm. um, in New York state. And so um, the teacher was using mostly English to talk with the children about butterflies and to help them learn. And the kids were getting ready to go um, on spring break. So I suggested that the teachers ask the parents to do a mini study about butterflies using their entire linguistic repertoire at home to think about, about butterflies. So the parents um, at home use the internet, use their own funds of knowledge to share about butterflies. And after the kids came um, to the classroom with this beautiful art displays about butterflies and knowing so much about butterflies and feeling free to use Spanish and English. These were kids mostly from Central America. At the end, the presentation was in English about butterflies that the kids did, but the journey of how they got there allowed them to construct deeper meanings because they were invited to translanguage. I'm just gonna add one last thing, because uh, I know that teachers out there are probably asking, well, I've worked with language separation for such a long time and that's what my administrators expect. And what does it mean to invite a translanguaging space into my classroom? I think that if we think about children's uh, meaning making in literacy, for example, that we need to think about it as a process. And so, for example, as a dual language teacher, I know that some of the pieces that I ask my students to do, like a personal narrative or a report, maybe I would designate the, the language at the end of that project would be in Spanish. Let's say you're writing a descriptive report about planets in Spanish but all of the different things that they could do to get to that point could be done through a translanguaging lens. So for example, at the beginning of the unit, if I were doing, uh, let's look at some resources, what can we read about uh, planets 
We could read about different things and view videos in English, Spanish, etc. And so the process can be infused with rich language practices that could then lead to a specific product with specific language objectives in one language. I think that's really important because I don't want the dual language bilingual teachers there to think, oh, well, that's going to ruin my, uh, my objectives. Uh, the students aren't going to acquire the language that they need. In fact, I think that the products will be much richer because students will be immersed and deeply engaged um, with each other and with texts. It's all about uh, the process. It's very similar to what uh, in Dr. Margot Gottlieb's new book about uh, um, assessments in multiple languages. And she talked exactly about that. She talked about like, okay, we know that the standards say English and we know that you have to get there. But the process of getting there doesn't have to solely be in a single language. And that's what you, and, and I think you just answered so many teachers' um, concerns of saying, hey, my school wants to do this, but how do I get there with, while still creating a space for the change languaging student? So thank you for, for both of those insights. And Margo Gottlieb's work is so wonderful. And I encourage all the listeners to listen to a range of scholars and educators, because I think through that, you're going to learn a lot about the different aspects of translanguaging and how yeah. it comes together in us. I just wanted to say. Good. No, and I think um, also um, what it bring, this conversation reminds me is that idea that when we're assessing children, unless we're assessing language, we're assessing content, we're assessing everything that the child knows. So it's so important that the whole child comes to that assessment event or learning event um, in, in that, um, depending on the situation. So I think being very aware that if we want children to shine and to show us everything they know, we need to give them um, the full space to do that. And this is how, how we honor students. We always, I love how you said before, the, there's a whole linguistic repertoire so they can bring their whole self. And when students are able to use their languages, the multiple languages, that's the bridge in which, that's the vehicle in which they can bring themselves, their whole selves. Yes, definitely. So let's talk about your book. I love this conversation, how organic it's going. Um, so let's talk about the seed for this book. Sure. Um, so um, in thinking about when, when we think about, so what are the seeds for this book? We want to tell you a little bit about um, our journey into um, our book. So we were part of a wonderful project called CUNY NICET. It's called New York State um, Initiative on Emergent Bilinguals. And it's really a project that was dedicated to improve the education of emerging bilinguals across New York State. It was a collaborative project between the CUNY, the City University of New York Graduate Center, and New York State Department of Education. And the leaders um, are Ofelia Garcia, Kate Menken, and Ricardo Otegai. So for many years, um, we work with schools on helping them really think about um, how they could improve the education of all emergent bilinguals. And the vision of this project is that bilingualism by literacy are an asset. And so that it really allows them to meet the demands of the 21st century. Um, and sometimes in, um, 
everywhere in the world, students who speak languages other than English received labels. For example, they're English language learners, um, but CUNY NICEF took a strong, strong stance that said they are emergent bilinguals or they're multilingual learners. And that what we need to do as educators is really draw on their rich and dynamic home language practices as they learn. That idea that learning English alone is not enough in the 21st century, that we really need to engage them in challenging curriculum across content areas, and that we need to meet also their social and emotional needs. So uh, while we worked in schools, Ofelia Garcia um, gave Laura, um, Asensi Moreno, Cecilia Espinosa, myself, and Sarah Bogiel a challenge. And she said, um, you know, I'm interested in you um, developing a translanguaging guide for writing. And so um, we worked on it, keeping in mind two of the CUNY NICEF non-negotiable principles. One of them is supporting um, the multilingual ecology for the whole school. And the other one is really thinking about bilingualism as a resource in education. As we work in our guide about writing, um, we really thought about how do we bring then um, all the scholarly work that has been done over decades on writing instruction that has really um, focused on the idea that writing, like talking, like reading is language and that we really need to think about carefully about the engagements that we provide our students. So as soon as Ophelia read our guide, she said, to make a long story shorter, I see a book here. Why don't you start writing it now? So it was thanks to Ophelia's vision that we decided to develop the book, um, to compose the book. And so as we thought about um, thinking about the book and imagining the book, we wanted a book that centered on the practices of emergent bilinguals. Um, we were classroom teachers for many years and now we're teacher educators. And we find that most professional books have maybe like a little corner that says for emergent bilinguals, do this. And so we said, no, we really need to um, center it on the practices and everything needs to um, be focused in a way that takes a perspective of strengths and it also builds on their strengths. And then we thought a lot about the tone of our book. Um, we thought that we wanted a book that was dedicated to teachers and that um, also would help teachers um, think and reflect about their practice as they engage in community with other teachers. So we wanted a tone that was conversational. I know I made a long story short, but Laura, you wanna add? <laughs> yeah, no, I love hearing about that. Um, but I think there were many points in our lives that this the seeds for this book were planted. Um, I'm going to add that Cecilia and I met each other when I was a teacher and she was a recent doctoral graduate student. Ophelia Garcia um, came to our school to do professional development and I was a teacher there. And Cecilia had just graduated um, from her doctoral program and one, was, I think, one of the only people in the country who was really immersed in bilingualism and descriptive review. Descriptive review is a process that uh, looks at the child carefully and deeply through um, many, over a long period of time, it can be, it can be our practices, but through deep and rich description. So she came to my school and we became uh, thought partners together. 
And I think that was about 20 years ago. So that relationship is one of the seeds that led to our work later in life. And then I think Cecilia and I have developed our um, work, as she said, through classroom teachers and being teachers, teacher educators independently. I know that Cecilia has worked for many years with the National Writing Project and has um, done studies on children's literature. So all of those things I think have enriched us independently and together. I know that as a teacher, I really was invested in thinking about reading and how reading could really be uh, a way that was meaningful for students, not just that we were examining that them through external standards, but that the reading process is something that was powerful for children themselves. So I think these like independent paths that we've taken and these joint paths that we've taken, also you can see in the book, because one of the things that, this is an insider um, story, one of the things that we decided when we were writing this book, and it took a, a while to write, I hope that's okay that I say, is that we said we wanted it to be like a conversation that we're having over dinner, something that's not rushed, something that is really personal. And I hope that readers can see that in the book that when Cecilia and I wrote it together, we were really having many conversations over a long period of time. Um, the last thing I wanna say about the book, it was that it was really important for us to look at all aspects of literacy. So we look at uh, read alouds, we look at shared reading, we look at um, guided reading, we look at assessments, we look at engagements in content areas, because we know that it's very easy for teachers to adopt a trans-enriching uh, theory and really fall in love with it, but not know how it can be then translated into the day-to-day -day practices that teachers are required to do in school. So we really wanted to help teachers think about how does trans-enriching look in guided reading? How does it look in assessment? Because often the narratives that teachers are given about these specific components of literacy is through professional development that has a monoglossic or monolingual lens. And so therefore, we really wanted to infuse in a practical, practical way um, um, how teachers can think about these engagements in a new way. So as Cecilia said, it's not, let's add a little bit of vocabulary here, let's add a visual there, because for so long, uh, instruction about emergent bilinguals was about add-ons. And we really believe that transformative literacy cannot happen at the margins. It has to happen by being infused um, in literacy instruction. I know that when I interviewed Dr. Ophelia Garcia and Dr. Kate Salso, they talked about uh, el corriente right, of translanguaging or uh, el juntos, the stance of take a juntos, the coming together. And then that's really moving from the strategies idea of a view of translanguaging to uh, this is a, a stance of how we teach. This is how we see instruction. And this is how we see our students as all of their aspects coming together to help them learn and help them engage. Yeah, so thank you for saying that. Yeah, I would like to add one last thing that we don't think that there is one particular way of doing translanguaging. 
taking a, a translanguaging stance or having the translanguaging quarterings in your classroom means that you take an inquisitive, curiosity, question-based stance to your teaching. So you may implement something in your classroom and you observe and listen and learn from your students. And that's how you grow into taking a translanguaging uh, stance or perspective and adopting translanguaging pedagogy. So it's hard sometimes because it's not one or two things that you do, it's how you think and how you act upon what you do. And, and certainly that translanguaging corriente demands a paradigm shift of how we view students, how we understand language. Um, so yes, certainly um, that idea that we need to center our instruction on the learners and the communities they come from. It's all about asset space. I think you're both talking about like seeing kids like, like translanguaging is not a strategy. It's starting with, uh, it's a foundation of teaching, looking at students' assets. I think my teaching changed when I said, what, when I moved from saying what kids can't do to thinking what kids can do. Right? And I, I know that now that I say, huh, this kid doesn't understand. I say, what can this student do to understand? Or what can I do to help this kid understand? And I always go back to, oh, students' languages or students' background experiences. And so that's very connected to the concept of like uh, the stance of translanguaging. That um, Laura has a wonderful story about a student using the iPad to translate, a student who was not um, participating very fully in the classroom. I think it was in the study with Sarah Bogel, Laura? Yeah, do you want me to talk about that? Okay. So, um, so I was engaged in a project with Sarah Bogel, who um, was a research assistant in the CUNY-NISA project and currently uh, an instructor at Bank Street College. But we were doing a project in uh, Chinatown in New York City. And the teachers were really concerned about a specific middle school student who was a recent immigrant from China. And they said, we don't know if something's wrong with him. Uh, he doesn't speak, he's, and he's not very social. And we said, well, let's work with that teacher. And what we found is that that student, you know, he had been uh, in China without his parents. He'd come to the US to be with his parents. So he, you know, this is a common story of immigrants all across uh, the, the world is that sometimes parents go ahead of their children. So there was, there was that emotional shock, um, but he was actually someone who was full of resources and that in fact, he was an expert in technology. So what we did was we said to the teacher, how about if we convert some of the uh, classes that you're doing to have a huge technology component so they were reading a novel, they were working in social studies. And so this child um, had components in which he was using Google Translate to do some of his work in Chinese and then using Google Translate. And what we discovered is that he learned on multiple levels. He learned about that Google Translate app, for example. He said, you know, if I put um, Chinese into the Google Translate, is that the English comes out really garbled. So what if I, if I put phrases or small chunks of language, it's much, I think it's better translated. So he learned to 
use through tinkering is what we call it, um, the app to serve his needs. He was also doing a lot of metacognitive work because although he was very reluctant to speak English, he did know how to read English at a better kind of level than he did speaking. So once Google translated in English, he could read it and analyze it according to what he knew in English and change aspects of it. So there was so much going on. He was involved in the actual content. He wasn't doing something completely different because very often you'll see when newcomers come into a classroom, the teachers don't even know what to do with them. So the kids may be reading a book and the newcomer is coloring or doing something, I'm just saying, you know, but doing something completely different. They're completely not involved. And so with this project, we found a way for him to be involved, but also he did more than what the other children did because he was learning about the Google Translate app and understanding how to kind of drive it in a way. And he was also doing a lot of metacognitive work in if this is the output, how can I change it so it means what I want it to And with that example, it when we when he was translanguaging, we could see him differently, right? Instead of saying, oh, he's not able to. Now when we step back and watch him work with Google Translate and watch him change and tinker, we can see him, wow, he's really an intelligent person. He wasn't able to communicate that in, in English, but now that we see that he's doing that in Chinese, we see him in a different way. That's what Dr. Kate Seltzer said. Translanguaging helps us see students in a different way. And maybe even see himself in a different way. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful. And I just want to highlight that so often teachers, and this is not, you know, I'm not blaming teachers because we all do this, that when we have an issue, when we have a challenge, a student who we don't understand, we may think, what's wrong with that student? How come they're not acting the way I expect them to act? And I think that this project really made the teachers go back and see, oh, this child is amazing. And we just didn't know how to view him. And so I think it's a powerful um, testament to teacher growth, to understanding. Um, there may be children that we don't know how to connect with or how to understand them. And it is about figuring out ways that we can do that. And the metalinguistic awareness that he developed in the journey. So certainly it's so powerful. Thank you, Laura. So let's talk about the two parts of your book. Let's talk first about how can we make reading a translanguaging experience? Well, I want to start out by talking about what is a translanguaging perspective about reading. And we've thought a lot about this. When translanguaging is mapped into uh, a reading perspective, that we can think about uh, reading as something that is centered on the person. So very often we have a monolingual perspective on reading where we think about, for example, bilingual teachers may think about, oh, they need proficiency in um, a language in order to read, or one language transfers into the other. In fact, um, Pat Patrick Popter has a, an amazing paper that says that transfer is actually not something that's natural but needs to be guided. So a lot of the monolingual perspectives on reading uh, places a lot of burden on the children, I would say. And I think that when we move to a translanguaging perspective on reading, we're really thinking about the person 
interacting with text in a new way, using all their linguistic practices. As Cecilia said at the beginning, what translanguaging asks teachers to do is to see children from one linguistic, that they're using their whole linguistic repertoire. I would say with, I would like to move that into like an expanded view of translanguaging, where we're not just looking at the one linguistic repertoire, but we're also looking at multimodal and embodied experiences and how that comes alive for children as they're reading. So a translanguaging perspective on reading really is centered on the person as they bring all of their resources into making meaning with a text. And I'm just gonna give one example that's in the book, but I, I love this example. I was working with um, a student in one of my former uh, teacher education students classrooms. And this boy, Carlos, is a boy who is, uh, is a Spanish speaker and a Korean speaker. He's half Korean and half Mexican. New York City is an amazing place because everyone comes together. There are so many combinations. We can't just say that one person is this or that anymore. Um, it's such a diverse um, society. And he was reading a book um, in Spanish about all these animals. It was an assessment book. So a book, the text that's used for assessment. All these uh, animals going to a pond to drink water. So teachers are very familiar with these types of texts. So the duck goes to the pond, the chicken goes to the pond, the dog goes to the pond, and the duck goes to the pond. It's very repetitive text. But then all of a sudden is uh, the wolf goes to the pond. And then he's reading in Spanish and all of a sudden he stops and he says, I love wolves. And to me, that is the perfect um, example of what a translanguaging perspective on reading is. Because while you may, may be reading a text in a given language like Spanish, when you come to a part that really evokes some meaning, so this boy Carlos, that's a pseudonym by the way, loved wolves. He had to express that in English and he howled as well. Because reading is, yes, reading is an experience that evokes our lived and embodied experiences. So we need to make sure that uh, children have the opportunity not only to be uh, viewed as readers when they meet external ex expectations, like how many letters do they know? Do they read accurately in this way? Um, but when we see them meaningfully engaged in, uh, in text, and I can go on for a long time about this, but I want to invite Cecilia to talk in a while. Sure. Thank you, Laura. That I love that example um, of the wolf. It's such a powerful example that um, illustrates that reading is also multimodal, um, so that we read with our bodies. You know, we experience text um, not just with our mind, with but with our emotions and our imagination in our bodies. And I guess I wanna add that um, really, um, when we think about reading, we need to think about how we set up the classroom environment so that it really reflects the, um, the kinds of readers we want to have in our classrooms. Um, we need to think carefully about the books, um, the book collection in our classroom so that it offers really mirrors and windows to who the children are. Um, on all aspects. And we have um, tools in our book that help teachers think about 
how they can um, examine their classroom collection, for example. Or um, often, um, you know, principals and directors ask teachers to think about their environmental print. And we think that the environmental print needs to be an extension of teaching, that if it's true that reading needs to always be purposeful, we need to think about how that expands the opportunities for children to construct meaning, to make sense of what's happening in the classroom, to aid them in constructing meaning as they work independently. So um, with that in mind, um, we also offer lots of um, great tools to think about read alouds or to think about share reading or guided reading. Um, we are also thinking a lot about um, author studies. So for example, um, how could we invite students to think about authors that write from a translanguaging stance? And we're so lucky that now there's so many authors who bring their home languages into texts in natural ways so that students can see their linguistic repertoire um, also reflected in the text of the books that are used in the classroom. Um, we think also that um, within that, there are many opportunities for, um, for students to work alongside other kids to construct meaning, to use the tools that Laura said, for example, with technology right now, um, certainly not knowing a word should not be a mystery. It should be an easy way to find out and to move on um, and to really think about opportunities to, um, to construct meaning. Yeah, I think uh, you were talking about the mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors, and that comes from Dr. Rudine Sims-Bissops, and I, oh, that just having books in that reflect and honor students' experiences, they feel recognized. I still remember the first time I read a book, and there was a Vietnamese word, and I was like, oh my goodness, you can do that? And I, was just, I just felt so affirmed, and I was like, wow. I, and I, I could see myself in the story now because there was just a Vietnamese word, and I felt so recognize just one little word made me feel closer and more affirmed and that's what our students feel when they see a whole book or as as authors weave in their multiple languages now together yeah i, I want to say a couple of things about that i also feel like i think i was told to Surya that i never saw a book with a colombian anything until i was in my 40s uh, and that's why Juana Medina's Juana and Lucas is so important to me. But as coming from a uh, um, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multinational family, I never saw that, you know, I grew up in the 70s in New York. I saw that all around me, but I didn't see that in any of the texts I read until I went to college when I read uh, this bridge called My Back by Gloria Ansandua and Cherry Moraga. That was a book that was edited by them. It was the first time in college that uh, Cheri Moraga, who is half white and half Mexican, really talked a lot about her identity as being in between and being in the borderlands. And I was like, oh my God, everybody I knew from Queens in the 70s and 80s is from the borderlands, but we were not reading those books. So it was really important. But one of the words of complexity that I wanna to add to this is sometimes teachers um, I'm currently working with uh, a teacher in a second grade classroom. And one of the things that we did in our studies, we realized sometimes teachers can make assumptions about the books that are mirrors for their children. And we need to honor that children may have their own mirrors, especially as two Latinx uh, teacher educators. We often thought, oh, we're going to bring Juana and Lucas to the class. 
And some kids may not really um, identify it in the same way that we do. And we may assume that our mirrors, because we share an identity, may be the same mirrors, but in fact, they may not be. So as teachers, again, this word of complexity is that we need to bring in diverse books, uh, books that show a variety of um, experiences, uh, backgrounds, but we also need to make sure we don't make assumptions about um, the children and what they connect to and what they what they need in their lives. Thank you for that reminder about being sensitive and being aware mm -hmm. about the books that we share. I can hear teachers now saying in the background, they're saying, okay, great. I know that we should do read out louds and guided reading and, and all these things that we do for reading um, through a translanguaging perspective. What if you are monolingual as a teacher? That is such a great question. <laughs> um, and so if, um, if a teacher is monolingual, but the students are not monolingual, um, I think that's something that um, taking a translanguaging stance does, does is this idea that um, it centers teaching and it centers it on the students. So um, I think it helps the teacher develops a sense of trust on the students' capacities. So for example, the teacher can be intentional about how the teacher um, sets partnerships in the classroom. Who is sitting by who? Who can um, support each other to engage in deeper um, construction of meaning? Um, I think that there, there is no reason, for example, why two students who speak Spanish can't sit together to construct meaning if one of the students is a little bit more bilingual, for example, to create that space for um, a deeper understanding of the text or to find a text that um, is in, um, written in the home languages of the children. Um, there is a teacher here in New York, we call him Mr. Brown. There are some wonderful videos about him in CUNY NYSEP. And he has several languages in his classrooms. He's, he, he identifies himself as English speaking monolingual, um, but um, he creates a space for the children to um, think about, for example, the to do for the day in the different languages. And then together they think about grammatical issues. So he might use, for example, Google Translate, but it's not gonna translate perfectly well. So he takes that opportunity for the children to help him fine tune the grammar and in doing that, they're also enhancing their understanding of grammar in English. So that idea that the teacher is also a learner in the classroom with the kids and is open and willing to um, decenter their own practice, um, I think is really, really critical. Laura, do you want to add anything? I agree. And I think that it comes to really being brave and challenging your own assumptions. I hear so many teachers say, well, if they speak in their own language, maybe they're fooling around. I don't know what they're doing. And so I think it's really important for teachers to interrogate those ideas and think, is it really happening? Or is it, for example, my, I have um, my older son, um, I asked him the other day, well, the teacher sent a note that he was doing side talking with a student. And I said, well, He's like, we were talking about what she was talking about. Like we were discussing social studies. So, so often teachers have this view of compliance, which positions languages as being non-compliant. And I think we really need to be serious about saying, you know, maybe that might happen, but I 
maybe a lot of kids are actually talking about what is happening in the classroom. And so I totally agree with what Cecilia says. We need to reposition ourselves as learners in the classroom, but we also need to challenge our uh, biases about how languages are used in the classroom. And think, you know, do we always assume that when someone's speaking another language that they're speaking about you or that they're playing around um, rather than actually deeply engaging? And I think there's many ways that you can do this through the environment. And, you know, I want to give a plug for Kini Naisab. If you look on the Kini Naisab webpage, you'll see tons of um, work um, about this. But in our book specifically, there's um, work on the language uh, ecology or the linguistic ecology, which is really important. What you put in your classroom sends a huge message to children about what is acceptable. And we talk about this so many times that, you know, you can, I always talk about Queens because that's my, my homeland, but you, it, there are so many communities in Queens. And if you are, for example, in a Korean neighborhood and you walk into the school and it's only English, it gives the sense that that is like in a totally different territory. It's like being in a, in a different country and then going to the embassy and be like, okay, now I'm, it, we don't want schools to be like that. We want schools, and I think Cecilia says this so well, to be a reflection of the community. And uh, in our book, you'll see that we try ways to help teachers understand how that can happen. And I also want to point out another thing from the book, which I've seen lots of teachers do now, both in college classes, but also with elementary uh, students, is the language portrait. Sometimes we assume that kids in the class may be monolingual. But in fact, this language portrait I did many years ago with a fifth grade class. And you will be surprised that a class that is a monolingual English class has so many language traditions. Children go to Argentinian school on the weekend, Hebrew school, after school. So they are learning and immersed in their cultures, languages in a way that may not be apparent because the school is so monolingual focused. So that I think it's important. Um, I was even talking to a teacher who was saying, oh, I'm monolingual. And when I pushed her, she was like, yeah, well, we're Irish and uh, I know some Irish words. And I thought, wow, you see, we try to hide so much of um, the language, uh, the languages that are home, but we need to make school a space where languages are open. And I know this is just one step in helping monolingual teachers uh, have a more open approach to languages that they don't know in their classroom. Yeah, I just want to add um, something, Laura, that you reminded me about, and it's that idea that there is not one Spanish that is correct and standard, but there are many Spanishes, for example. So um, we have an example in our book about the word um, kite, cometa, uh, where if you look in the different language, in the different countries, um, each country has a different way of saying kite in Spanish. So that idea that translanguaging can exist even within one main language. It's not just going, you know, sort of to a completely different language, but it can exist within. I think that that's really important. Thank you. Well, let's move to the last part. We have about 10 more minutes of the podcast. So we just talked extensively about writing, sorry, reading. Now let's talk about writing. How can we make that a translanguaging experience? Sure. 
So um, as writing teachers, we always think that it's important to start by supporting the writer and to really think about areas of strength and need, right? Um, but I think that's something that often happens with emerging bilingual children is that we take a stance that first they need to know the letters, um, that before we they even can convey a real, a meaningful message. But we want to start always with this idea that um, we want to help emerging bilinguals see that they have a lot of important things to say and that writing is a powerful tool to help them see, say their meanings um, in the most clear ways, right? And so that as we are thinking about developing this writing identity and that we're helping them think about how it is that they can, um, they can really take a translanguaging stance um, as they um, develop as writers, we can ask teachers, for example, to think about uh, what are questions they can ask in their classroom? So one question teachers could ask is, for example, what are the purposes of writing that I offer in my class? And with that in mind, it, the question would be, are there authentic audiences that the children are writing for? For example, could they write, the kids write an invitation letter to the parents in their home languages, not just in English? So how does writing exist in the world? And what kinds of invitations do I create for that, right? And then within the classroom, what opportunities do the students have to fully express themselves and express what they know? And what tools do we offer them to really, really engage in writing in ways that reflect the 21st century, um, which is really a, a century where uh, one person can write a text in one language and can receive a response within seconds in another language. And people are still communicating and languages are not necessarily being kept together in rigid ways. But that one speaker, if I think about my own writing sort of stance this morning, I wrote texts in Spanish and in English. Um, I uh, wrote emails in English and I wrote to Laura in Spanish. So we certainly go back and forth. And, um, and I did that because I'm really capitalizing on my own linguistic, entire linguistic repertoire. And so in classrooms, what are those spaces to really enhance the children's opportunities to construct an identity of writers that reflects the needs of the 21st century? And Lara, do you want to add anything? Sure. Um, I'm really inspired to think about just like reading. Writing is not something that we should always just think about through external uh, kind of standards, but also think internally what's important. And, you know, I mentioned that I'm the mom of two boys. And one of the things that I see with them is how they use reading and writing in their life, which is very different from how I've used reading and writing in my life. And I see all of these platforms like um, Discord and uh, Twitch um, that in classrooms are not used at all, or they're not, it's always text-based. And so I think it's important to see how children are really engaging in reading and writing in ways that are purposeful for themselves. And I just wanna highlight that one social studies teacher that I, um, saw working with his emergent bilinguals, had kids uh, write tweets um, 
And, and I thought that that was so meaningful. So they were writing tweets about a current event. It was a couple of years ago. So it was about what was happening in Egypt. The kids wrote tweets. They wrote it on paper and then they put it on a bulletin board. I'm not sure if they actually tweeted anything because I don't think they have Twitter accounts. But how do we engage in these conversations that are happening in the world and not just re reside in ways that we've learned, like through books or through paper? Those things are certainly, and I don't want teachers to think that we're just saying, oh, that's out the door. It's not. People have to engage in those traditional ways of using text. But we also want to push ourselves to think about how are children using text uh, for their own purposes. And I want to talk about one last thing, which is about a project which I'm engaged in with uh, Sarah Vogel, who I mentioned again, is uh, the Participating in Literacies and Computer Science Project, where we think about emergent bilinguals doing coding as authors and how uh, coding has often been kind of a gated process where certain people know how to code and certain people don't know how to code. And to think about it as a way where children can engage in coding to talk about the things that are important to them. So they coded games, they coded skits. In one, uh, Shakira was interviewing uh, the character in the house on Mango Street. So how do we make these experiences for authorship that is essentially writing uh, more expansive to incorporate the different types of media uh, and experiences that children are using. I think we need to think about those things as well. And certainly, Laura, that is um, such an important um, current and next step, you know, that educators need to take. And as, as, as I was hearing you talk, I was reminded of some ways ideas about writing um, in that idea that she says, it is through writing that we discover what we know. And also it allows us to think about, as we discover what we know, then we discover what we want to write about. So taking um, writing as a, a position about writing that says that um, writing is also a process of discovery and not just of demonstrating sort of um, a final product, which is important but um, writing has so many layers. I think in what Cecilia and I want to message to teachers is that we can do both. We can have children reach standards and do what they need to do to be viewed as um, not only competent, but successful readers and writers, but we can also go beyond and have them engage in very extensive ways of literacy. Because the student who is a beginner and they're using TikTok or Discord in a way, we can start seeing them in a different way. And so you're helping us see translanguaging can move into technology and the technology that they're used to as well. So mm -hmm. let's end here with, these, with this final question uh, for each of you. Um, where, what is one tiny step that a teacher can take on this path to get started in their translanguaging world? Lara, you want to start? <laughs> sure. You know, I think the first step starts with you. So I would encourage teachers to either engage in a project that's in our book, like the language portrait, or also in our book, we have so many resources of questions that teachers can ask themselves. And the end of the book, uh, we spend some time asking teachers to think about their own history 
as a language learner, just interviewing yourself and asking yourself, what's your relationship to books? What's your relationship to uh, school? How do you learn to read? How do you, how do you interact with texts in another language? Um, so that you can put on display for yourself, what, what are you coming to the translanguage stance with? I don't think that you can make uh, meaningful changes in your classroom until you really have a conversation with yourself about what is it that you believe and why do you believe those things? Because once you do that, you can have a starting point for thinking about your teaching practice. So I would say um, to really start with yourself, whatever that means, whether it's drawing, writing, speaking to yourself, going for, your, for a walk, but really engaging these ideas in a way that's meaningful to you by asking yourself these questions. And again, talking about our book, there are many entry points within our book through the language portrait, through questions, and we also have series of uh, professional development questions at the end of each chapter, which I think are really helpful for teachers to think about their own ideologies alongside their pedagogy. Those are such great ideas, um, Laura. Um, I was thinking to add to that something that I usually ask my um, prospective teachers and teachers in my classrooms is to take a walk around the school, to take photographs of the community and to notice how languages exist in that community. What is the language ecology of that community? And then to come to the school and think about what is happening with the language ecology of the school and in what ways it reflects the community where the school sits. Then think about their own classrooms and think about the language ecology in their own classrooms as they get to know the language and practices of their own students to really work hard to think about how does it reflect who the students in that classroom are. Um, I think that both that study of the self and then a study of the community um, can certainly help teachers transform um, sort of their ideologies about how languages exist outside the school and inside the person from a 21st century perspective. Thank you. And then I think it's about taking baby steps. I always tell my students at Brooklyn College, when you do a read aloud, choose the book that you are most in love with to do your final project because you're going to have a relationship to that book uh, in a way that the students are gonna see that. So my advice to teachers who are uh, excited about trying translanguage is pick a component of literacy that you love. It could be uh, read aloud, it could be guided reading, it could be writing, it could be whatever it is and try little things within that component. So let's say I really love to do read alouds. Let me try one or two things within my read alouds and see how it goes. Once I have that down, then I can start expanding to other components. You can't do everything at the same time. So that's my practical uh, uh, advice to people who, after thinking about is a translanguaging stance, um, how can I implement that in my classroom? And what are my own ideologies? Then pick something that you love to start with. Well, I think this conversation has been just beautiful and it really honors the title of your book, Rooted in Strength. I feel so much stronger and more validated from this conversation. And I know that through this book, you're going to help students and teachers 
be rooted in their strengths. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tan. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Tan. What a pleasure it was to talk to me. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I really appreciated how Dr. Espinosa and Dr. Ashenti Moreno remind us that translanguaging is not a strategy, but a stance. This stance is rooted in students' strengths, hence the title. When we create spaces for students to learn and express themselves in ways that tap into their diverse strengths, we can see their whole self. Remember, even if you can't speak all of your students' languages, we can still create a space where they are translanguaging while reading and writing. I hope you get a copy of this book, Rooted in Strengths. I know it will be one of your favorite teaching companions. In the next episode, we'll talk to the CEO and the founder of Off to Class, Chris Degasia, about supporting newcomers.